In this episode, we speak with Dr. Brendan Nichols, who teaches post-colonial African literature at the University of Leeds. We speak with Nicole Beardsworth, who is a postdoctoral researcher in politics and international relations at the University of Pretoria. And we speak with Tamika Sanka, who researches media and communication and development at London School of Economics. We talk about the apartheid and the international stage, the international nature of the resistance, Mkoto we Suizwe, the utilization of global organizations like the United Nations, and the politics of that region during that time. Now we hear a recording of Nelson Mandela at the very beginnings of the anti-apartheid movement. The interview was done in 1961. the man who organized this stairway, a 42-year-old African lawyer, Nelson Mandela, the most dynamic leader in South Africa today. The police were hunting for him at the time, but African nationalists had arranged for me to meet him at his hideout. He is still underground. This is Mandela's first television interview. I asked him what it was that the African really wanted. The Africans require, want the franchise on the basis of one man, one vote. They want political independence. Do you see Africans being able to develop in this country without the European being pushed out? We have made it very clear in our policy that uh, South Africa is a country, a country of many races. There is room for all the various races in this country. Are there many educated Africans in South Africa? Yes. We have a large number of uh, Africans who are educated and who are taking part in the political struggles of the African people. The question of education has nothing to do with the, the question of the vote. The, on numerous occasions, uh, it has been proved in history that uh, people can enjoy the vote even if they have no education. Of course, we desire education, and we think it's a good thing. But uh, you don't have to have education in order to know that uh, you want certain fundamental rights, you have got aspirations, you have got uh, claims. It has nothing to do with education whatsoever. Are you planning any more campaigns of non-cooperation? Yes. The Peter Marisbeck Resolution makes provision for campaign of non-cooperation with the government and we are presently starting plans to implement uh, this aspect of the resolution. Now if Dr. Verwoord's government doesn't give you the kind of concessions that you want sometime soon, is there any likelihood of violence? There are many people who feel that uh, the reaction of the government to our stay at home ordering a general mobilization arming the white community, arresting ten thousands of Africans, the show of force throughout the country, notwithstanding our clear declaration that this campaign is being run on peaceful and non-violent lines, close the chapter as far as our methods of political struggle are concerned. There are many people who feel that it is useless and futile for us to continue talking peace and non-violence against a government whose reply is only savage attacks on an unarmed and defenseless people. And I think the time has come for us to consider 
in the light of our experiences in this stay at home, whether the methods which we have applied so far are adequate. So now we speak with Dr. Brendan Nichols, who is Associate Professor in Post-Colonial African Literature at the University of Leeds. So what exactly was apartheid and how did it play out on the world stage? So um, apartheid comes in formally um, in 1948, just after the Second World War. Um, you know, prior to, if we go back to the end of the 19th century, you've got a war between uh, the Boers and the British. Shortly thereafter, you've got a political settlement called the Union of South Africa, where um, South Africa is divided up into, into four key provinces um, and is notionally kind of self-governing with some remote links to, to the UK. And then the Second World War, there's a big debate as to whether or not South Africans should or white South Africans should support um, you know, the British or whether they should support Hitler and the Germans. And there was a, um, a group of kind of radical Afrikaners called um, the Osvar Brandfach, which means something like the Oxwagon Firebrand, who actually came out in Nazi regalia and argued that, you know, people should be should be siding with Hitler rather than the former uh, colonial power. And then, you know, what had been obviously a racist society until that point, um, and there's evidence of, you know, <laughs> we don't even need the evidence, there's so much of it, um, of, of racism prior to 48. It becomes entrenched legislatively um, increasingly after 48. So, you know, I've looked, I found a newspaper article when, when I was looking for this guy from Zimbabwe who goes down to South Africa, I found, a, I think, a 1934 newspaper article where someone sends in a letter to one of the main Johannesburg newspapers saying, you know, black people should not walk on the pavements. They should walk on the roads. And the editor is able to respond, yes, but there could be quite a few more traffic accidents and we wouldn't want to advocate those. And that's the end of the letter. Um, through to much more entrenched and almost normative um, racism at every level of society. So they nobble the courts. You know, they, they, the courts overturn some of the legislation on the grounds it's unconstitutional. And they pack the courts with their own judges. And at that point, everything just opens up. And then you see legislation where every South African has to be categorized according to a certain race. You're either white, you're black, um, you're colored or um, uh, Indian. Those four. And it, it got so deranged, that classification, that if you were a white woman living in the same house as a black man, you would be categorized black, no matter what your relationship with him, except if you're a white woman who owns the property and the man is your gardener living out in the outhouse, um, then, then that's fine. So there's kind of these inconsistencies, wow. um, you know, that, that made no sense, but that were there to try to control every level of, of society. And then what you see, once you've got those forms of categorization, you've got increasing, um, you know, job reservation for whites only. Um, you've got whites only parks, whites only benches, whites only buses, whites only schools, whites only hospitals, whites only beaches. At, at every level of society, you've got this racial divide with the best outcomes being driven towards a, a white minority who own 85% of the land, 15% of the people, and every possible form of disadvantage having to carry passes to move around the country and enter the city and find work for the black community who are 85% of the population own 15% of the land. Um, and then you've got the police kind of policing of that where people just get picked up because they haven't got their pass at night, you know, put into prison. Um, so sort of a distribution of outcome and, and um, at every possible level of the society, along with um, the banning of love across, um, you know, racial lines, a banning of marriage across racial lines. And then as the resistance kind of gathers, 
particularly in in um you know from the 60s through to the um you know the the the, the, the um, 1990s um you've got a, an increasingly militarized response you've got a shooting of innocent civilians at Sharpeville um who are protesting against passes you've got um school children protesting in the 1970s at which is the point at which you know the revolution is for everyone if school kids take the lead it's now everybody's in in it um, and, and you've got a police, um, you know, force that's willing to open fire on nine year old kids and 12 year old kids in the streets. Um, and at that point, you've got a kind of crisis of conscience in, um, white South Africa where, you know, you have to decide, are you willing to tolerate a regime that's willing to shoot down school children with impunity? And then you see the deaths in custody, you know, people like Steve Biko, uh, people like Neil Agate. You see the political assassinations, uh, Griffiths and Victoria Mkenge. Um, Griffiths was a lawyer, um, and Victoria was, was, um, a very capable lawyer, and she's gone down, I think, slightly after him. And you've got third force activities where, uh, you've got death squads, you've got, um, political assassinations, um, you know, people sent letter bombs and things. You've got dirty tricks campaigns, um, where, you know, apartheid agents will plant bombs and blame the ANC for having done so. Um, so, you know, in, an increasingly desperate um, attempt to cling to power by whatever means, you know, censorship of the media. Um, I can still remember when one of the leaders of the Cape Coloured community, as they would call themselves, it's, it's um, you know, it's a self-identifying term, um, you know, based on, on the apartheid legacy, but these communities may call themselves that very often. Um, a guy called Alan Bosak, um, no, not Alan Bosak, was one of the others, um, but he he went to the beach and and had a swim and the the news media reported it. Um, Hendrickson was his name, um, and the, the the news reported it instantly got a call from one of the government leaders saying, "How dare you publicise on television news the fact that you know this leader has taken a swim on a beach he's not allowed on?" Um, so real control of the media, censorship of writers, banning of people to to their own homes in some cases, you know, imprisonment without trial eventually. Um, you know, just really the grubbiest of the grubbiest in terms of, um, you know, the erosion of human rights for black South Africans, deaths in custody made to look like suicides, um, and, and anyone among the white community who wanted to side with them, you know, police informants on campus, uh, you know, and so it went out, you know, it, it was such an entrenched, um, system and yet it crumbled, um, under resistance within a matter of, you know, a couple of decades, um, and I think that that speaks volumes for people's ability to make their own history and to choose their own freedom um, and to win their own freedom. And and what we're left with is one of the finest constitutions in the world um, and a government that enjoys the support of the majority of the population. And that is, you know, does fine in the polls. Um, you know, the country has its legacies and it has things it still, of course, has to work with after all that time. Um, but there's immense cause for optimism um, and immense, immensely good literature actually coming out of a out of a free society these days. Exactly, indeed, that was very interesting. And I mean, you do have young people who believe that you know this new breed of the ANC are not for them, and that's perfectly fine. Like what they are fighting for now is a new struggle. You know, the old struggle of dismantling apartheid that has been done. It's now dismantling legacies of apartheid. And that's what they're fighting for. And many writers are doing this through their writing, like you just mentioned. So what I wanted to talk about now is, you know, in your view, during the apartheid era and even the post-apartheid era, 
what do you believe is the role of the writer in an unjust society? You have different writers who have different views on this. Some believe, well, I'm just a writer, you know, I'm just writing, I'm just living my life. And some people believe, well, you, you can't divorce yourself from society because you are part of that society. Even if you are a writer, you are a human being first and a citizen second. So what do you think? That, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, the, one of my favorite stories is that Andre Brink in South Africa, Andre taught me, he taught me um, at the University of Cape Town for a year, and he lived two doors down, so I'd see quite a lot of him say hello. Uh, but he was a very romantic sort of a writer in his views of what the writer was. And the story goes that he once said about the writer in, um, you know, under apartheid, the writer is the diagnostic organ of the state, which is a lovely, lovely, lovely image. Um, <laughs> and apparently J.M. Kutsia answered back to him, um, is the organ inside or outside the body? In other words, no matter if you're, <laughs> you're right in a diagnostic organ, you're still complicit. Um, so, I mean, come to your question on the role of the writer. My instinct is always that the writer has an obligation to the society that they come out of. And especially under apartheid, if you were privileged by apartheid, if you were a white writer, um, you know, how could you forget that what puts you in the position to commit pen to paper is every possible advantage that a society could give you? How could you forget that? Um, for a black writer, I'm not sure that there were that many choices other than to oppose an unjust society because, because those writers would have lived it, you know, every moment of their daily existence as, as, as black people, but also would have found impediments to getting published, would have found themselves banned the moment they spoke out, would have found themselves censored if they were even published. Um, so I side very much on the idea that the writer has to, at some level, address and and take on preferably injustice where they where they feel able to build that into their work and and someone like nadine gordimer you know was was relentless at trying to do that throughout her career um and especially when when you know that moment in the mid-70s where white south africa's in crisis and has to learn a lesson uh, and can no longer be ignorant of what's going on in its name mm-hmm. i i think you know i've heard the other side of the story i've heard the idea that you know, the writer only has the obligation to their craft. Um, someone like Kutsia would say, um, you know, there's no, you cannot tell a writer what to write because that's a form of censorship or coercion or pressure. Um, the writer only has to do their duty to, to the words on the page. I think the, the difficulty with that, that I would have with that, is what kind of craft is it that exists nowhere in the social but exists only in a space that's free of it? Um, it doesn't make an enormous amount of sense to me, much as I love Kutsia's writing. I think the idea that you can almost seal off your imagination hermetically from the world um, is a difficult one for me, at least, to kind of um, understand. I've, I've got no worries about, you know, disinterested story. I love story for whatever it can accomplish. But I think that sometimes there are more important stories and less important stories. And for me, at least the story of opposing apartheid, you know, as a child um, during the 70s, seems to me like the biggest story going um, and one that provides plenty of um, fertile ground for the imagination. And and you see it, you know, the, the poets from, say, the Soweto poets, I've, I've recently written on them, 
you can see them adjust their poetry as history changes underneath their feet, as, you know, the, the poems before 76 are different from the poems 76, 77, where you've got Soweto and then you've got Biko's Murder in Custody. Um, and these are writers who are calibrating their craft and who are forming a tradition in real time and who are also not just writing on the page, but are going and performing among the community at, at political gatherings and very often are using very quick kind of photocopying machines and, and literally handing out poems on street corners to anybody going into to <laughs> a political protest. You know, it's, 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 it's tapped into um, relations with, with, with people as they gather politically um, and, and, you know, and energetically, of course, because uh, gathering is, is also about restoring the social that's, that's under attack by, um, by a racist apartheid regime. The mere act of coming together as a people is actually the, one of the, the key forms of protest. Um, so for me, there's enough imaginatively. I, I don't see committed writing as um, lesser writing or less complex or less creatively accomplished. In fact, you just have to, to read it on its own terms and is every bit as accomplished um, and a great deal more responsible, perhaps, than other forms of story. Exactly. You touched on it a bit, but... Let's just talk about the writers and the key literary actors against apartheid. So guys like Stephen Biko, Bessie Head, Dennis Brutus, you know, how important was their involvement in the struggle? Um, start with, with Brutus and, and Bessie Head, because um, there's a, uh, I think there's a very obscure link between the two of them. Um, really? I'm sure, yeah. Um, so... Bessie Head, as we know, was was born into and um, uh, you know as a she's a child of mixed um, race relate, uh, liaison. Her dad was black. Her mum, well, no one knows who he was. Her mum was white, um, and Bessie Head finds out very late in life that she isn't who she thought she was. Right, she's an adopted child, and by that point, her mother's in fact passed away, and 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 she will ne- she never knew, never could know who her father was. Anyhow, the the family, the the biological family. Um, there was a, one of the members, uh, one of her relations, I forget if it was kind of her, her grandfather, or if it was one of the uncles, but he was involved in the, um, South African Olympic, um, institutions and Dennis Brutus famously, um, opposed the Olympics. Um, so we've got kind of, even within, you know, a, a single generation of writers, Brutus and, and Bessie Head, you know, they mapped onto um, the politics of their moment and intertwined in interesting ways in just in terms of the relationships and, and who they're kind of opposing politically and, and so on. The other thing about Bessie Head is she's involved very early on in the, the Pan-Africanist Congress and her early writing is very Pan-African in outlook. Um, so she's a committed activist, but she then gets forced into uh, a political trial. And that's one of the drivers behind her needing to leave South Africa. And so she has to leave South Africa without her passport and just go into exile as a stateless person. Um, you know, which is one of the cruelties of South Africa that it needed to, you know, hang on to people whom it was abusing politically and, and economically in every other way. Um, Brutus, I mean, is, is, um, a titan of a figure. He, um, I read his poems when I was first in first year. And I remember one called Cold, which is about him being imprisoned, um, in a town, I think called Colesburg, uh, right in the middle of the Karoo. Um, and, you know, you've got these crisp stars and these freezing kind of freezing weather. It's it very cold there. And I just remember the imagery of coldness, the metal chains of, the, um, of, of people. And I think Brutus might have even been um, imprisoned on Robben Island as well. So he was tuned into, um, you know, the, the, 
political kind of elites as well. Um, Biko, I came to much later in life. I remember hearing about Biko being murdered in custody. And my family had, in fact, known remotely uh, Donald Woods, who was, who was Biko's um, friend, because uh, we were from the Eastern Cape, which is where Woods is from and where Biko eventually ended up in, in, in house arrest. Um, and, and he was always kind of escaping from house arrest and performing community activities like development initiatives and health initiatives and things. Um, but I've gone back much more recently to read his work, particularly on the, on black consciousness and black consciousness dialectic. Um, it, it's astounding. You know, he, he was at, at, um, the university I went to as my first university. Um, so it was the University of Natal Durban later became University of KwaZulu Natal. While he's there, he formulates um, black consciousness um, as as a philosophy, um, ensures a split um, between the black student organisations and um, the white student organisations, so that now there's you know there's a refusal to um, kind of be represented, if you like, by the wrong kinds of representatives on campus. Um, his work on the black consciousness dialectic is an absolutely, I think it's a wonderful piece. It's like five, 10 pages. And he describes how he's setting in place by just gathering a community of consciousness together. Um, he is going to um, set in place a dialectic with white South Africa. And by drawing those dividing lines, you will see historical change happen because there's a proper dialectic in place, a proper division. And he sees through some of the, the subterfuges of white liberalism, you know, the fact that it, it can't claim to go for justice and tolerance when it's still benefiting from a corrupt system. And so he draws those, di- he draws those dividing lines so sharply and um, fascinating that as young as he was, he had to pay the ultimate price. And I was reading just recently that he may have been going um, to meet someone from an, um, one of the international organizations, I think from, from Sweden, um, this, this came out to one of the former police spies, um, and that they, that the, the police may have been told to pick him up for those reasons. Um, and, and of course, you know, the, I can still remember people on the, on the radio saying, you know, oh, well, he hasn't been killed in custody. It was an accident. He fell against the wall. And then I remember the, the autopsy re- reports came out. Um, and, you know, just the massive embarrassment that this caused to the apartheid regime. They had nowhere to hide. Um, because, because the evidence spoke for itself. Um, I often think to myself what, you know, his legacy is around, his thoughts are around. He still speaks powerfully to, um, the youth of today, you know, um, in, in, in terms of fees must fall and roads must fall. Biko's influence is there. It's still there. It's still alive. Um, I, I wonder what, what more would have, would have been around had Biko lived. Um, because to demonstrate such ability and such promise so young, um, and then to be robbed from us. Um, I think, you know, is, is an historical injustice, um, not just in, in that moment, but also um, to, to the future he never lived to see, you know. Um, and, and one of the things I love doing is tracking through um, the poetry of the time, how Biko's ideas are working in it, um, because you can see the poets picking up on that idea that, you know, history is change, um, any contribution you make to history is change, um, and the change will sort itself out in ways that you cannot predict, but you have to keep setting it in motion. Um, and um, that's, that's, that's what, um, progressive politics is, is, is about, you know, you play for the future without any guarantee that the future you're particularly hoping for may, you know, will arrive in the form that you, that you hope for. Exactly. I mean, another person would be Chris Haney. He didn't stu- he didn't, um, he wasn't a writer per se, but he did study English and classical literature. And 
when he was assassinated, you know, it felt like the whole of South Africa was on the brink, really. Mm. And it, it really was the leadership of of certain people like Sisulu and Mandela who felt like, well, they can't win a war, but they can win an election. So that's the path that they have to take. Yeah. And, and Hani, Hani, I can remember, it. there were a series of shocking events, you know, around that time. And for a few months, it looked very much as if um, democracy was not going to happen. Civil war was going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. no, when, when, when Hani died, it things were pitched, you know, just so finely balanced. And Mandela, I've seen this on, on YouTube, uh, I think came out and said, you know, um, let's all just hold our nerve here. Um, you know, we, we're going to find the people who did this. Um, but it, it, I can remember feeling just around in the air that it was electric and there were... Um, you know, other incidents, there was the uh, invasion of a Buddhist by the far right groups who, who, you know, sort of got taught a lesson. Um, you had um, uh, others who were kind of shot through their front window at about this time, progressive Afrikaner intellectuals. You had um, bombings at um, the Heidelberg pub in Cape Town, the shooting at St. James's Church. Um, you know, little things that taken together or not little things, but just events that seemed in isolation, but that took on a force together to suggest that things could go very much the wrong way. Exactly. And I, I can still remember the day when we voted and when we got democracy and I, I was a student and we all went to go and queue up to vote and the queue, the line, the queue was too long. So we, we, went, <laughs> we went to a coffee shop instead and it was a student coffee shop. And for the first time in my life, a black lady walked past me in a restaurant and said, excuse me, lovey. And I moved my chair and I got this big smile on my face like, this is this is what it looks like, you know. <laughs> this is what we've waited for, um, <laughs> and and then um, you know the fact that someone was there um, in the same social space, part of the same temporary community in the in the, in the restaurant as you, enjoying her coffee like you were enjoying your coffee, probably waiting to vote because the lines were so long. And then we went we went at night time once the queues had died down a bit. We went to a different polling station um, and and voted. And at that point, we sort of knew, you know, that. Um, it had looked like civil war might come, but but the, the 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 social and the civic were asserted very very quickly and very strongly. And I think, um, you know, the the the, the rugby final ninety um, five I think was was very important in terms of its symbolism. Um, you know, it left uh, you know whether no matter what the um, the truth of it behind the scenes, I don't know the truth of it, but just in terms of its symbolism that a nation could come together with common purpose, even when, you know, rugby had never been inclusive. Um, I think it set the tone for what followed. Um, and I think it, it also set a much better tone than, you know, the death of Hani or, 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 or you know, the invasion of, of Putitswana or, you know, the, the, those various moments, um, Bisho, I think there were shootings as well, that just suggested things were, you know, were poised to go entirely wrong at the crucial moment. Exactly. And I, I think that sort of highlights everything we've been speaking about, you know, regarding the apartheid movement and how, how far it has come. But then you still have the certain complexities about how uneven society still is. People are still fighting to right that wrong in their own ways, really. You know, and, be it in Pretoria, and, Bloemfontein or Cape Town, wherever. And, and, and um, you know, the... I think for many people, the struggle isn't over until 
true equality is achieved. You you can have um, rights, but if you don't have equal opportunities, rights don't always open the doors that need to be opened. And exactly. and on that on social media last night, I saw a friend of mine put up a picture of a community who've occupied land. This is behind my old university in Durban. Mm. Um, and they've got the France Fanon political school that they have set up for themselves. They have invited speakers. Um, they all grow their food communally and they have signed an agreement that they will meet four times a week to eat together. Um, and they're going nowhere. That's their home and they're staying there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I think this whole conversation is sort of like, you know, place front and center, the power of the written word. Um, and the idea that the, the ink of a scholar is worth more than the blood of a martyr. I don't know. It depends on <laughs> what sort of stance you take, really. But <laughs> uh, at least the ink is strong. We do know that. And and, and the blood of the martyrs sometimes leads to a lot of ink as well. Um, exactly. It does yeah. indeed. So I, I guess what I'm asking here is what exactly, do, in your view, is the legacy of, the, of, the, of African literature? You know, since the dismantling of colonial the colonial project by Africans and what it is today and how, you know, where you see it going in the future. We see how writing has sustained the people of the continent, you know, in good, in bad, in wonderful, in not so wonderful times. And the writing and the writers keep, you know, give, give people hope, keep mm. people going. And in, in your view, you know, what do you think is the future of Africa and the future? I, what I'm seeing at the moment is, you know, you look at a, uh, novels like Lagoon or um, Aquaeke Mersey's Freshwater. Um, I think, number one, um, there are perspectives and views of the world that African literature still contains um, that are valuable and that find readers um, and enthusiasts anywhere. Um, I think increasingly we're going to see the African novel reaching out in global ways and telling stories you know, that reach far beyond the continent. Um, you look at Emezi's book, you know, the, the, the mum in that story is um, from Southeast Asia. The dad is in Nigeria, but educated in the UK. The daughter goes off to America to college there. And, um, you know, it's a distinctively African story, but it's one that just reaches across multiple spaces and geographies. Um, and I, my hope, and, and there's nothing that I've seen that would prove this hope wrong, is that African literature is increasingly going to be part and parcel of global story. Um, you know, it, it'll reshape not just kind of um, what we think about the continent, but hopefully increasingly what we think about the world. Um, and, you know, for, for someone who enjoys, who says we get the best books, that's just a, <laughs> joy, a joy to keep looking forward to. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's fantastic. Now, the fight against apartheid, was one that brought the whole of the continent of Africa together. It was a truly, truly massive moment for the continent. And everyone galvanized resources from Zambia and South Africa to Algeria in North Africa to Tanzania in East Africa and Nigeria in West Africa. Now, in 1977, the then military leader of Nigeria gave a speech denouncing apartheid. Olushego Basanjo was his name. So now, let's hear it. It will no longer help for our so-called friends to adopt pious postures and preach non-violence 
when our enemies are busy inflicting mental and physical violence on us. We shall no longer just watch the races of Pretoria devise improvements to their machinery of terror and repression. We should no longer just be outraged. We must act. In the words of my worthy predecessor, we cannot pretend that we are unaware of the machinations and conspiracy against our continent by not just the races of South Africa, but even by those who pretend to be the friends of this continent, but whose sole interest is in what they can get out of us. The black people of the world are drawing nearer the stage of direct involvement in the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. We as a nation will acquit ourselves creditably when that stage is reached. We wish to salute the courage of our brothers and sisters who are in the front line of the struggle in Southern Africa. We wish to recall and pay due homage to the heroes of Soweto and others involved in the June 16, 1976 challenge to apartheid. We are aware of their continuing struggle and sacrifice and the heroic stand of the youth and students of South Africa. We take cognizance of their potential. The undaunted use of Soweto are the new additional weapons which the system of apartheid has designed. In time, this new weapon will be harnessed with others to destroy apartheid. Now, there are many who felt that it was hypocrisy for all these African leaders to talk about and galvanize for the fight against apartheid in South Africa when countless atrocities were going on in their own countries you know and one particular voice on that is Fela Kuti the musician now in 1982 he was interviewed in a documentary called Music is the Weapon and this is what he had to say about that Nigeria they come and do apartheid committee apartheid this you know the meeting in about Namibia in Nigeria everything Nigeria takes on its head you see, but this country is a Gestapo country. How can Nigeria be talking about South Africa? You see, South Africa is better than Nigeria. I know so. But, but look, we are saying whites are mistreating blacks in South Africa. Okay, that is bad. That is racism. They have a reason to do it. And blacks are mistreating blacks in Nigeria. What's the reason? That's worse. Police beat people on the streets like dogs. They don't, I mean, in South Africa, I mean, they do it, but they know they face public, um, public uh, criticisms. So they, they watch themselves to do it. But in Nigeria, they say Nigeria is against apartheid. Nigeria is this. Nigeria is a good. In America, talks about Nigeria like Nigeria is the greatest African country. But Nigeria is the worst African country. We have the worst things are happening, worse than South Africa. So now we speak with Dr. Nicole Beardsworth, who is a
postdoctoral research fellow in politics and international relations at the University of Pretoria. Okay, so thank you, Nicole, for agreeing to join me. I really appreciate it. So shall we begin with um, the 20th century and, you know, the, a huge chunk of Southern Africa basically was living under apartheid. So be it Zimbabwe, which was Rhodesia at the time, or South Africa. So how exactly um, did this influence the political system in the 20th century in these parts of, of Africa? Well, I think it's... So apartheid was, uh, as you know, specific to South Africa, but sort of forms of soft kinds of um, racialized political systems existed a- across the rest of the continent, as you say, in settler, settler colonial Africa, uh, in Kenya, in uh, what was then Rhodesia, northern Rhodesia, southern Rhodesia, um, South Africa, and, and in other places as well. And the way in which this impacted on the post-colonial state is, of course, that at the point at which uh, the control over the government fell to Africans. Um, so those are people who are indigenous to Africa. Uh, that it shifted a lot because of the way that uh, resources and power were diffused within society. Um, that particularly in Southern Africa, people who took over the post-colonial state had been educated in the settler colonialist uh, education system, had often not been provided with the skills that they needed to manage a uh, a complex economy. Um, and so it, it shifted that, but it at the same time uh, affected who had power and who had wealth and resources in society. And so it affected the way in which post-colonial economies developed. Um, So in Kenya, what we see is uh, massive plantations and and plantation agriculture being a a sort of key sector of the economy at independence. We see similar problems in Zimbabwe, where uh, after 1980, when ZANU-PF came to power, uh, after deposing uh, Ian Smith's regime, which was a sort of, one might think of as a sort of soft apartheid, um, you had the entire economy wired towards uh, white settler colonial agriculture. And that group continued to hold some economic power, even if not political power, post-1980. So you see the way in which the economy and political power was structured uh, was heavily dependent on uh, the sort of nature of the economy and the nature of power prior to that point. Indeed. Um, Very detailed answer. Um, So let's talk a bit about the people who dedicated their lives to fighting these systems. Um, And let's just zero it down to South Africa. And one particular organization was the ANC. So, of course, the ANC was formed in uh, 1912 as the South African Native National Congress, the SANNC. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was formed by Pixley Seme um, and a range of other sort of quite young professional black men in Cape Town who found themselves uh, 
coming up against a glass ceiling because while uh, black African people in South Africa were able to vote in the Western Cape uh, in the early 20th century, their franchise was limited by, I think, education and by land holding. So Mm -hmm. one would have to be um, wealthy and educated in order to be able to vote. And they saw this as a hindrance to, you know, broader the black African population within South Africa. So that became the locus around which the uh, South African Native National Congress began. Um, and they started by trying to extend the franchise in the Western Cape. But of course, that was quite soon after um, undermined by things such as the, the 1913 Land Act um, and the broader disenfranchisement of Black people in South Africa, which came thereafter. Mm. Um, The ANC, as you noted, was just one of many different organizations in South Africa, but it became quite soon the the most prominent. It allied itself with other organizations representing different groups like the the Natal Indian Congress uh, Mm. and, oh gosh, the... Zapo later, um, and these organizations created the United Democratic Front, the UDF. Um, And so in the 1960s, what we'd seen was as uh, formal apartheid came into being in 1948, uh, the ANC started to move towards taking a more active stance against uh, legislated Um, black disenfranchisement and uh, dispossession. And so in the 1950s, uh, the ANC starts to align itself with organizations such as um, the South African Communist Party, which is the oldest communist party on the continent. And they start to become slightly more radical in their approach. I mean, in the 1950s, the organization was still headed by fairly conservative leaders. Um, but the Youth League, uh, head then by, um, headed then by Nelson Mandela and others, uh, started to advocate for a more forceful approach to trying to dismantle, uh, formal apartheid. So, In the 1960s, uh, we see the ANC moving towards a more active stance against apartheid, um, undertaking uh, a sort of program of trying to undermine state infrastructure that ultimately led to the Ravonia trial and the treason trial, um, which put Nelson Mandela in prison for 27 years. Yes. Um, I mean, now let's talk a bit about the foreign policy of the region. Um, so in the, I'll say, you know, so from the sixties towards like the early eighties, the, the foreign relations of Southern Africa, so be it Zimbabwe or South Africa or Zambia was characterized by good relationships with the West. Um, mm-hmm. and it was a very peculiar relationship because they had another um, set of leaders who believed that this sort of good relationship was based on a false premise. Um, and then towards the 80s, the relationship became one of um, negotiations and talks, so like the Lancaster House talks for Zimbabwe, for example. I guess the question here is, you know, 
how has the foreign relations of all these countries in Southern and East Africa evolved from time? But just for now, just speak a bit about the 60s down to like the 80s. Sure. So um, when we're talking about foreign relations, we need to think about multiple actors. And so what we saw was that the apartheid government uh, was taking a very active stance in foreign relations. They were actively courting the USA and the UK. They had um, pretty close relations with, uh, with the governments of both countries. And in the 1980s, um, that becomes even, even stronger under Reagan and Thatcher. Mm. But in the 60s, uh, the South African government has several key allies, one of which is uh, Ian Smith's regime in Zimbabwe, or what would become Zimbabwe at that point, Rhodesia. Um, and they have allies in the West who, uh, from whom they are buying armaments, um, they're receiving sort of uh, economic help. Um, so the government, the apartheid government, has strong relations with the West. And on the other hand, we see the African National Congress, which we talked a little bit about, which has strong relationships with other countries in the region. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the 1960s um, and the 1970s, we see the ANC in exile being based in Lusaka, in Zambia. So you have these frontline states across Southern Africa who host, who intentionally hosted uh, liberation organizations from Southern Africa um, and, and played host to them, but also gave them uh, financial support, um, moral support, and, and diplomatic support. And so in Zambia at that time, in Lusaka in the 1970s, you have this proliferation of liberation movements and a real kind of um, coming together of all of these uh, people from, you know, the regimes who are under, uh, under settler colonial rule across the continent. And at the same time, you see growing support within the Organization of African Unity um, for the decolonization of the rest of the continent. Uh, so that kind of support was driven by key states which had already achieved independence, such as Ghana, um, Kenya, Tanzania, and they want to sort of um, encourage the decolonization of states that are still under colonial, uh, settler colonial administration, such as South Africa, uh, Rhodesia, Northern Rhodesia, and Yasaland. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> um, so the reason I said we should um, talk a bit about the, the first half first before we enter like the 1980s is because well, around this period, um, things change a bit in the sense that in Uganda, you have a new president in 86 with Museveni coming to power. Um, and then in, in Zambia, there's sort of like a, an acknowledgement that um, kind of Kaunda's time is coming to an end. And also mm -hmm. in Zimbabwe, um, that's when you start to see the, how, how will I put this, like an um, understanding that this guy is firmly in charge now. Um, Mugabe is firmly in charge now. And also around this period in South Africa, there's also a willingness of the apartheid government sort of negotiates with the people and they start giving better conditions of living to Mandela and other people like um, in Robben Island. So the reason I, I say is because the Cold War 
is a very important context for these relationships around the region. Um, could you talk a bit about how the Cold War sort of guided all these countries in Southern Africa and how they related with all these foreign powers? So, of course, uh, the apartheid government in South Africa sells the African National Congress as an organization um, that is closely linked to uh, Russia, to what was then the USSR, um, and and sells the ANC as a communist organization aiming to overthrow democracy in South Africa. And, of course, this is... Uh, tinged with all kinds of absurdities because um, I think very few people would agree that apartheid South Africa was a democracy at all. But uh, in selling in selling the ANC as a communist organization that was affiliated to and funded in part by the USSR, um, the South African government forms very close allies with those in the West who see themselves as a kind of bulwark against uh, Soviet aggression and against the growth of communism um, in non-aligned states or in, in states who uh, have not taken a stance. So they see South Africa as a key ally on the African continent to prevent the growth and spread of communism. And South Africa sells itself in this way as well. And so what we see is the South African government then takes an active stance uh, in other conflicts in the Southern African region. We see the South African government sponsoring um, anti, uh, anti-liberation movements in some sense in, um, in Mozambique. We see it happen in uh in Namibia, and we see it happen in Angola as well. And so this, the apartheid government becomes heavily enmeshed in wars around the region where they said that they were fighting for the entrenchment of democracy. But uh, it's broadly believed that they were just contributing to the destabilization of liberation movements around uh, the region particularly those with a kind of leftist orientation or those who might have been receiving support from um, either communist China or from uh, the communist USSR. Yeah, that was a very detailed answer. After many years of struggle, the fight to end apartheid was won. And on 10th of May 1994, Nelson Mandela addressed the country as the first black president of South Africa, ushering in a new age. This is what he had to say. Out of the experience of an extraordinary human disaster that lasted too long, must be born a society of which all humanity will be part. So now we speak with Tamika Sanka from Cape Town, South Africa, who is currently researching media, communication and development at the London School of Economics. Um, I think like specifically South Africa, I think it's changed and it's not changed because there's like, if you talk to people, there's like a mixture of views. So on the one hand, um, obviously apartheid's ended and we now have like the ANC came into power and they've like stayed in power since they since apartheid ended and it is like 
the black majority who um, are in power, essentially. And on the one hand, people think there's been like movements um, to empower black people and give them more political power. But some people in South Africa still believe that like economically, most of the power remains with the white population because they can still control a lot of the wealth. But that is changing very slowly. And in terms of like internationally, um, obviously like during apartheid, a lot of Western European countries, though they won't admit it now, did support the apartheid government. Oh, of course. <laughs> and, um, um, you know, Mandela was like branded a terrorist overseas. And so was um, the ANC. They were like viewed as a terrorist organization. Um, of course, now, like, that view has changed and Mandela is seen as, like, an iconic hero, which he is. But I think even um, internationally, I think South Africa, like, because there's so many, like, internal issues, it's very difficult for them to have, like, substantial international power, politically and economically. And even though in Africa, yes, they are one of the more powerful countries, there's been a lot of like tension with other countries. And I think this like goes back to like the xenophobia, which happened recently. And um, just like relations, I don't think are so good right now. Yeah. Mm. Any other thoughts? Anything specific? I, think, I mean, that's actually a very good answer. I think it takes us directly to the next thing, which is apartheid. <laughs> You know, for the idea that apartheid has ended, it's not just an idea. It has actually ended. But for a lot of people, they still haven't seen that change in South Africa. They still believe mm-hmm. and see the, the vestiges of apartheid all around them, you know, in terms of economic power, even the political power itself. Because you have guys like, you know, Zuma and Ramaphosa, but then people behind them are still the white majority powers economically mm-hmm. i think it's like like you said it's really really present still and like it only ended in 94 which is not that long ago so it's like that whole generation still there and i think um like you were saying how much has power shifted because south africa is still considered one of the one country which has very high inequality and like that's still very like racial based like race based so like even in Cape Town, you can see the divide between like the very rich white um, minority who live there and the Cape Coloreds, who are people who are mixed, who still live in um, an area called the Cape Flats, which is essentially like very impoverished and run down. And it's where people live during apartheid. And so it's like, how much have people moved? And that also like goes back to economics. Like, do you have like the economic means to like move yourself out? And um, I've recently read a book, I can't remember what it's called, but they did a series of interviews. And for some people who grew up in the Cape Flats, they say like nothing's changed for them from apartheid to now because they're still living where they lived under the same conditions. So I feel like, yes, for some people it has changed. And um, of course, like equality shouldn't be taken like lightly because it's not and people do have like the means some people have had like major changes but i think we can't forget about like 
everybody who's still in the townships and still in the Cape Flats and still like dealing with the same issues. And then now there is also like a shift where um, there's been like Black BEE, which is like Black Economic Empowerment. And because we're like a very mixed country, yeah, economic freedom prizes. The Black Economic Empowerment was a good move in the sense that it gave Black people, um, it like created places for them. So every like company and every like, um, even the sports teams had to have a quota system, which is good because it's like like trying to um, like close the gap. But then there's like the economic freedom fighters and that it is exclusive in a way because there are still, apart from white people, there's like Indian people, there's colored people, there's like the Cape Malaysians. And it's a real melting pot actually, South Africa. Hmm? It's a real melting pot, South Africa. Yeah, it's so diverse. And I feel like even the like freedom fighters, it's very exclusive. It's very like focused just on black people and yes of course they were them they suffered the most during apartheid but at the same time like where do we want to be we don't want it to swing one way we want it to be in a place where everybody kind of has equal rights so exactly and this i mean takes us to the next question which is (laughs) (laughs) the relationship between south africa and the rest of the african continent south africa had a very peculiar um evolution if i use that um, you know they had in the last century they had the boer war which was a precursor to the world war one and then they had the institution of apartheid in 1948 and they more or less had stable governments even even though they were white oppressive governments they were stable as opposed to what was happening around them in the 20th century where you had very authoritarian and oppressive governments well, if you were <laughs> if you were black, then of course it was authoritarian and oppressive. <laughs> but if you were white, it was fantastic. So I guess what I'm asking <laughs> is how does South Africa relate to their neighbors today? Uh, because back then they viewed all their neighbors as hostile because they were trying to um, preserve the apartheid system. So of course they tried to invade Namibia. They fought Mozambique. They fought all these different people so they can preserve it, and Botswana as well. And um, but. How has that relationship evolved today? Because a lot of people who were part of the struggle in the ANC were supported by, you know, black governments around South Africa. And what is that relationship like today? In um, I mean, like you said, I think it like is has changed a lot. So um, it has changed a lot. So I think during there was like a period of time during apartheid where the ANC forged good relationships with a lot of other um African countries which were led by African governments. So even Angola, because they had their civil war and a lot of like ANC members trained there. So there were like and ANC members used to hide out in a lot of African countries and they were given refuge, which is not like an a light thing. It's a big deal. And so mm-hmm. those countries did support South Africa. I think now with the xenophobia and issues of like immig- like illegal immigrants coming in from Zimbabwe and the fact that South African people are very hostile towards them. I think relations are not so good. So even like Nigeria taking back all of um, their immigrants who are in South Africa says a lot. And it is very like sad on South Africa's part because of course, I don't think in any way like the immigrants are to blame for anything. Mm-hmm. Like, they haven't done anything wrong 
and um like it's just it's people are like channeling their anger at the wrong people is what it is like scapegoating essentially and so i think because like it's extreme levels of violence and it's like a lot of it's just very awful that essentially like these relations are kind of falling apart and we're not doing so well mm-hmm. okay this takes us to the next question <laughs> um and we're going back further now so at the end of world war one and also at the end of world war two only one person signed both treaties to end both world wars and he was south african so that was jan smuts um so south africa is very important in in the prosecution of both wars but Let's go back a bit further now to colonization. South Africa has a very peculiar colonization history because at first it was a staging post for the Dutch in the 17th century before it sort of grew into a thriving colony for those who were crossing the Cape. And, you know, towards the 18th century, 19th century, you had large deposits of minerals, you know, diamonds, gold, and that brought a lot of Europeans and that led to fighting amongst Europeans to, they didn't even factor in the Africans that were there because they had, <laughs> they had stronger technology and really they had treaties with some of these um, African states at the time. Mm-hmm. So there was sort of mutual respect before they believed that, well, they had to take everything for themselves. But speaking in the broader sense of the continent and colonization, what do you think is the legacy of colonization, not just in Africa, but in the African diaspora today? Um, the legacy of colonization, I think, so this actually like feeds into a lot of what, um, I've been recently like reading, but in terms of like a Western perspective, I feel like colonization isn't viewed as like horrendously as it should be. I think people still have this perception that, oh yes, it was bad, but then they brought all these like things to Africa. They brought technology, they brought this, even in India, they brought the railroads, but what we're missing is like so much of that was done because it benefited them at the time. It benefited these Western countries. Like in India, the railroads were brought so they could ship like everything they were stealing out for themselves. In Africa, even in South Africa, technology was brought so that they could steal the diamonds, so that they can mine all these like natural resources, so they could set up um, their own like what like colonies there essentially. Mm-hmm. So nothing was done for the benefit of people living there and also um it's also like how we view development like we think development is what the west says it is and suddenly all these countries were underdeveloped but it's like what does that really mean exactly um why does having like machine guns and having a huge army make you more developed and so i think But I do think it's changing how we view it. I think we are taking into account more perspectives from African countries and from Asian countries which were colonized, but I think it's still quite minimal. And the legacy isn't as brutal and honest as it should be. It's quite like a Western perspective still. I think South Africa, like you said, is kind of different from a lot of other African countries because while like all a lot of most African countries suffered colonization, I think South Africa was one of the few countries where they stayed and they did not leave and they're still there. (laughs) (laughs) They did. And, and apartheid was like an ingenious form of racism, which like you see um, bits of everywhere else. So like America and even like 
New Zealand and Australia, but I don't think it's exactly set up in the same way where it's all like very structural and um, very like obvious, even physically, you can see it, you can see the division. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it caused a lot of like trauma for people. That's one of the reasons we have high levels of violence now because it didn't end so long ago. And that um, it's like that generation who like were treated so badly and suffered a lot of violence from the government are still there. And so it's just kind of like led on to a lot more violence. We have a history of it. And so it's it's almost ingrained. But at the same time, I feel like there's a lot of positive aspects. Like we've had Nelson Mandela and there is no other Nelson Mandela and there's never been anyone in the world like him. So even that's like, it's, it's like incredible. And I think it's a good legacy. And we've let him down. But... Um, <laughs> Really? I think we have. There's been so much corruption, even with Jacob Zuma and um, previous leaders. It's very disappointing. But I think also apartheid didn't end that long ago. And things don't change overnight. And yes, it's been some time, but it doesn't mean it's not going to get better. 